The Jewish views on refugee children. A group of rabbis call on Prime Minister May to allow up to 400 into the UK. UK Jewish film. What's in store for the biggest community film festival this year? And Jamie tell us about the importance of their work in light of World Mental Health Day. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Rabbis have joined with leaders of other faiths to urge the Prime Minister to allow almost 400 refugee children into the UK. The children, some as young as eight, live in the camp in Calais, which has been nicknamed the Jungle because of the appalling conditions there. The French authorities have claimed the camp will be demolished by the winter. The Home Office has said that France has primary responsibility for unaccompanied children. The President of the National Union of Students has sent a letter to the Union of Jewish Students asking for a meeting. Malia Boatia, who's been accused of failing Jewish students, wrote an article five years ago in which Birmingham University was described as something of a Zionist outpost. UJS told the Jewish News that the meeting with Ms Boatia will be used to address the concerns of Jews regarding anti-Semitism in the student movement. A debate entitled How Can Palestine Be Free, which was scheduled to start at Manchester University's Students' Union just half an hour before Yom Kippur came in, was postponed. The reason given by a university spokesperson was that it had the potential to breach the code of practice on freedom of speech because Jewish students would not have been able to attend. The university's Jewish society welcomed the decision and said they hoped the event can take place at another time. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has announced that the Dimona nuclear reactor in southern Israel will be renamed in honour of the late Shimon Peres. Mr Peres, who died in September at the age of 93, founded the country's arms production industry and led efforts to develop a nuclear weapon. Dimona was the result. It was built with French assistance in the late 1950s. And finally, the Rebetzin of Norris Lee Synagogue went skydiving over Bury St Edmunds, hoping to raise £10,000 in sponsorship, which will go towards a very special ambulance. Frieda Kaplan has teamed up with GP Judith Tobin on the project, which needs £100,000 in total to buy the so-called bucket list ambulance, which will be specially designed to take sick people of any faith to events that fulfil their final wishes. That's the news. Now the sport comes from Andrew. Thanks, Viv. Israel kept alive their hopes of qualifying for the 2018 World Cup in Russia after recording 2-1 victories over Macedonia and Liechtenstein. However, despite taking six points from six, the full-time whistle in Jerusalem was met by a chorus of boos from supporters who were unhappy with the team's performances over the two matches. Israel travelled to Albania for their next match in November. The director of Kick It Out the organisation which deals with racism in football, says she fears anti-Semitism in the game is only going to get worse. Rasheen Wood was speaking at the Jewish News-sponsored Action Against Discrimination event, which discussed anti-Semitism in football. How serious is it now? And finally, former wrestler Bill Goldberg is planning a return to the ring following more than a decade in retirement. A WWE champion, the fan favourite who's known in the wrestling world by his last name, could take on his old nemesis, Brock Lesnar, next month. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at 
jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Richard, let's start off, as we always do, with the front page, shall we? And the headline reads, Government Freeze on Aid to Terrorists. Yeah, this has been an ongoing story for a number of years in terms of the aid that the UK and the EU, in fact, give to the Palestinian Authority for supposedly humanitarian aid, basic necessities of life, food and shelter, all the things that can sustain a society and, and move Palestinian society on in all the ways it should be. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And a lot of this money is being siphoned off to the makers of rockets, the diggers of tunnels. Two billion pounds, if memory serves, of money was sent from the EU to the territories between 2008, 2012, and it all vanished. There's no uh, understanding of where that money's gone. So a lot of it gets pilfered. A lot of it ends up in the apparatus of terror that Hamas uses to attack Israel with. And uh, now the British government have put a freeze on it. It's no more payments going to be made this year. They're going to take a view next year as to whether that can then continue, which has obviously been a, a well received by the Jewish community and is reflected on our front page this week. Okay, so there will be some people listening, Jew and non-Jew alike, who maybe wonder, how do we know where that money is going? How do we know that it is being siphoned off to terrorists? Well, the £2 billion I just spoke about was officially lost to corruption. The EU went into the territories in 2012 to find out if there was a paper trail, where the money had gone, had it gone to infrastructure, to schools, to hospitals, to places where this sort of money is most needed, and they couldn't find any of it. Unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is filtered and pilfered away by people that don't deserve the money, and hopefully, if it can be turned off, if the tap can be turned off, then they can reassess where this money is going and how it can be better used elsewhere. The problem at the moment is that all this money is going towards a massive pot of international funding. So it's not we're not just talking about British money that, that happens to be going towards paying these terrorist salaries, but uh, it all goes into a massive pot. And the concern is that by making that pot larger, you're making it easier to enable these payments that do take place to terrorists and their families. And, and it's done on a sliding scale. So the worse your crime, the more money you end up getting. Interesting. Well, all I can say is that let's hope that proper reviews will be carried out. And with any luck, there will be absolutely no element of British taxpayer money or, in fact, for that matter, European taxpayers' money that goes into the hands of terrorists. Next story is to do with Cable Street. We obviously spoke about it on this programme recently. There was quite a large event to mark the 80th anniversary of the infamous battle, should we say. And, Justin, it's, I believe, on page two this week. That's right. Uh, Battle of Cable Street, a landmark moment in the fight against fascism and anti-Semitism within Britain. The planned march by Oswald Mosley and his black shirts through a Jewish area of East End on the 4th of October 1936. There were a number of events this week to commemorate that historic battle. In particular, there was a march through the area past that famous mural marking the battle. And there was also a separate event which took place involving the Jewish community and organised by the London 
London Jewish Forum and the Jewish Leadership Council. We were delighted to be media partners for that. Sadiq Khan was the keynote speaker. He spoke about how the Jewish community should be proud of what took place on that day. He was joined by the chief rabbi. It was interesting actually to hear all these Jewish community leaders lining up to praise those heroes, as they're now described, of, of Cable Street. It's not so long ago, 80 years ago, that the Board of Deputies and other Jewish leadership bodies actually urged Jewish community people to stay indoors and not to take to the streets on that day. And, and what would have happened if they had? Oh, very good question. Richard, could you even begin to imagine what would have happened if they didn't? It's very, very difficult, I think, now in our comfortable lives to look back 80 years. And you're talking pre-Second World War, pre pre the horrors of, of what we now know transpired to actually have this taking place on our doorstep. And this is a part of London where my father grew up. Uh, he was a couple of years before he was he was born. There's talk, of course, that if, if Hitler had invaded the UK, that Mosley would have ended up being his a minister of Britain. I mean, we, we were on this is the world on a precipice. And for, I think for people literally just to take up arms and there were stories of them with, with pitchforks and brooms and all sorts of bags of unmentionables hurling them from the from the top of rooftops this is a, is a, tr- a terrific moment i think and a, an opportunity for us to reflect on on how brave these people were and ask the question could we be as brave today a very interesting question one of which i believe that none of us in this studio could even begin to answer however maybe there is a question we can answer i don't often go quoting m people but we need to search for the hero why? <laughs> yeah, well, you're almost quoting our headline in the paper this week. We're holding out for a hero, which I believe is Bonnie oh, Tyler. Bonnie Tyler, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we do a lot of campaigns, initiatives in the Jewish news. I think my favourite one of all is our Community Hero Award, which we do every year in association with Mitzvah Day. So if any of our listeners know of a hero, somebody in our midst that deserved this reward, this accolade, this appreciation from the community, please email us at editorial at the JN Group dot com editorial at the com and who knows they might be this year's winner what would you say constitutes as a community hero justin we're often trying to uh, define what a hero actually entails but i think this could mean and it has meant over the last few years various things from people that have given a you know decades of service to the community as, as a voluntary basis to someone that's performed a one-off act of bravery and anything in between so yeah okay well Indeed. Well, if you do know anyone, editorial at thejngroup.com or if it's easier to remember, studio at jewishviews.co.uk, whichever way we'll make sure that all nominations get sent through to the appropriate people. I think we've got time for one more to cram in. Now, I can't even believe I'm introducing it like this, but I know it's how she's become known. If uh, if I was to say honey, you would say... Gee. Quite. Why, oh why, I ask you, is Honey G from The X Factor, of course, in the paper this week? Well, I think we got to a point this week when not only did Honey G, for anybody who's following The X Factor, which I'm not, but I do like to catch up the day after, when she reached the final... When you can fast forward it. Well, when she reached the the finals (laughs) and then managed to not be voted off in the first live shows, I think we reached a moment when we had to address the phenomenon that she is. This woman, this satirist, this person, I don't think anyone has seen since her almost namesake, Ali G, was doing his thing 15 years ago. You can even go back to Chris Morris and the day to day. All these satirists that take pop culture and throw it back in the face of pop culture and, and, and show it up for, for how facile and frivolous it is. This woman is a genius. This woman has got onto primetime TV as this 
I think you have to do a, a, a degree in postmodernism to truly appreciate the genius of this woman. She might actually end up winning. We have tried desperately to get an interview with her. Of course, she's far too busy to talk to the likes of us. But we've done a homage to her on page 10 asking satire or is she serious? And what do you think the answer is? It's satire. The woman is a genius. She can't possibly be serious. She is, as I said, she's taken the X Factor and she's thrown it back at itself and made it implode on itself. And if this, if this woman happens to follow in the footsteps of Leonie Lewis and, and One Direction and actually win the show, I think that could be the finest moment in British TV history. OK, I think you're being very, very kind in the paper this week when, by calling her a satirist. But the awful truth is... Is it not just because it makes the show more interesting to watch and the producers of The X Factor know this? Well, I've never seen Richard quite so exercised about uh, any, new, any new story in, in recent months. That's um, very, very disturbing. Yes. Keep going. Um, but uh, I, I have I have my doubts about whether this is actually a satire. I, I, from what I can gather and from some people that actually know her, it, it appears that she's absolutely serious here. But time will tell. And she is being tipped as a potential finalist and she would be the first Jewish finalist in Stacey Solomon, which would be very exciting. Can't wait to go to her school and, and meet all her all her. Friends friends and our teachers. Well, I'll leave you to make those arrangements. And in the meantime, I'll thank you both very much and say that's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you heard a little earlier on, rabbis have joined with leaders of other faiths to urge the prime minister to allow almost 400 refugee children into the UK to discuss this matter further and to talk about how the Jewish community could play its part. I've been speaking to Dr. Edie Friedman, founder and executive director of JCOR, or the Jewish Council for Racial Equality. I started by asking Edie to tell us how the work JCOR does relates to matters concerning refugees. Well, JCorp provides a Jewish voice on race and asylum issues, uh, both a practical voice in that we do things ranging from collecting nappies, new underwear, not only to collect these items, but also to restore people's lost dignity. It's very important if you have nothing, that at least you, you have something, to befriending young unaccompanied young people as well as mentoring refugee doctors. And both these relate to Jewish experience. We've had our own kinder transport, so we've had a history of unaccompanied minors coming to the country. And we had refugee doctors in the 1930s who found it difficult to requalify. So we felt this is something also that resonates with Jewish experience. And then we do a lot of campaigning, because it is one thing to offer practical support. It is another to ask the government to change what they're doing, which means that uh, refugees and asylum seekers have a fair chance to rebuild their lives in this country. And just to make it absolutely clear, this is something that's more of an interest to the community rather than exclusively for Jewish refugees. Oh, no, I, I don't know of any Jewish refugees. I mean, there might be literally a, a handful but the people in the main that we're talking about, particularly because of conflict in, in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, are, of course, Muslim. Now, you founded the organization itself. What would you say inspired you to start it? Well, being a sort of product of 1960s America, where many Jews were involved um, in social justice issues, and in those days it was uh, campaigning against the war in Vietnam, and campaigning for civil rights. There was a 
huge gap between life chances of black people in America and, and white people. And in certain areas in the South, you'd be hard put to tell the difference between Southern America and apartheid South Africa. And um, the whole civil rights movement was something which attracted a lot of Jews, I guess, again, resonated with Jewish experience. But it was the right thing to do. See, there's a little bit of a problem when it comes to the word equality, isn't there? Because it's that famous quote from the book Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. In J. Cor's vision, what is equality? Well, I guess it's removing any barriers. So if you have a name which sounds foreign and you don't get a job or you don't get the first interview because of, of your name, if you're treated differently in the classroom because there's expectations that if you're a black child, your behavior and your academic aptitude will be different. And, you know, we we don't live in an ideal world, but one wants to be sure that at least we remove barriers so that people have the opportunity to make the best of their lives and have control over their own lives. And how would you actually go about trying to remove those proverbial barriers? Because is it through publicity? Is it through, as you've already mentioned, campaigning? Is it through actually going to the people in authority and saying, look, this is what we found now, do something about it? How does it all work? Well, it would be all of those things, and it would also be education that, you know, certainly Jewish children need to learn about discrimination as it affects other communities. Uh, We quite rightly teach a lot about anti-Semitism, but it's important that Jewish children learn about the Irish experience, what happens to the Roma community, what's happened to black and Asian communities, how asylum seekers and refugees can can be discriminated. Uh, JCO is a very small organization, and we are one voice uh, amongst many. And, you know, this country can be proud in that we have very strong legislation which prohibits um, discrimination. And, you know, we have a lot to be proud of because of that. And these laws have to be strengthened and they have to be enacted. And we have to be aware that we have this legislation. You talk about one amongst many. If we refer to the reason why we're talking about this in the first place is because this group of rabbis who have teamed up with other leaders from minority Mm. backgrounds in a bid to try and get these 400 refugee children rehomed in the UK. Does JCOR ever team up with its partners, as it were, in crime in terms of sort of who else is trying to see this kind of change implemented? Oh, absolutely. And and we were involved uh, a few months ago in an initiative which brought 200 faith leaders together to sign a letter to um, to the government asking that we have a just asylum and, and refugee policy that people have to be allowed to come here safely and that family reunification is something that has to, to be honored. And we had an event um, with the former Archbishop campaigning. So it's both an educational thing as, as well as a campaigning thing. But we came together with one voice. But it's very important that we, our allies, are not only other faith communities, but secular organizations as well. Civil society, we have to say that uh, many of us have a different vision of Britain, which is one which is welcoming to refugees, and we have a very mixed history. Uh, We've been very good at it in in our past, uh, and we've been bad at it, and we have to be honest about that, but we have to show that we are at our, our best when we are generous to other people. The question that comes up when this sort of story arises, whether it's in the Jewish press, the national press, all too often you hear people say, why should I care? 
what's it got to do with me? I'm okay. And people do have a very self-centered and very selfish attitude towards it. What would you say to anyone listening who potentially does have that mindset? A number of years ago, an ad agency came up with the um, slogan that refugees are ordinary people to whom something extraordinary has happened. We all could be refugees. And certainly most people in this country come from some immigrant past, whether people came here to seek uh, work, to seek a better life, or because they had to escape for their lives. You know, it's an accident of birth where one is born. And if you're lucky enough to be born in a safe country and you haven't had to flee then, you know, in a sense, we are all in it together that we need to, you know, have this understanding about a, a world family where we all have to be responsible for each other. And I think for Jews, um, clearly Jewish teaching as well as Jewish experience demands that of us as well. How is JCOR funded? Well, through individuals and a number of trusts. We're a small organization and like most small organizations, or like most charitable organizations, we all struggle because there are so many competing demands within the Jewish community and the wider society, and it's hard to support all of them. So it, uh, it is difficult. Just finally, when you started JCOR, what was your ultimate vision? What would you like to see change in the world we live in right now to say that's it almost mission complete? <laughs> well, I, I think I would like to see a Jewish community which is confident in itself and is happy to be in the forefront of the, the struggle for social justice. And in the case of JCOR, it's about having fairness, justice for asylum seekers and, and refugees, for black and ethnic minority communities. But, you know, ideally a world where poverty is reduced, particularly child poverty, well, homelessness is, is reduced, where people have a fair chance to live the sort of life that we all should be entitled to live. Dr. Edie Friedman, founder and executive director of JCOR, talking to me there about the news that a group of rabbis have joined with leaders of other faiths to urge the Prime Minister to allow almost 400 refugee children into the UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Adam and I will be joined by children's author Joe Craig. We'll be discussing Jews in the film industry. Plus, Diana Toman should be speaking to Tanya Harris from Jamie about World Mental Health Day. But first, can you believe the UK Jewish Film Festival is nearly upon us once more? It runs from the 5th to the 20th of November and features an array of different cinematic delights at various venues across the country. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Michael Etherton, the chief executive of UK Jewish Film, to see what this year's event has in store. Now in the festival's 20th year, Kate started by asking Michael, what's the secret to its success? It's, it's all about our audiences. We have 15,000 visitors each year. This year we're hoping for many, many more. And we bring them a huge variety of Jewish and Israeli films from around the world. It's really about providing the diversity and the range of the latest contemporary films. And, you know, that's what we, we know they love. And that's what we bring that's absolutely unique. No one else does this. So it's not the Israeli Film Festival. This is a specifically Jewish Film Festival. 
Yes, we're the UK International Jewish Film Festival, okay, so to give us our exact title. And about a, probably about a third of our program is from Israel. So this year it's about 30 films from Israel. And then we have around, if my maths is right, around about 60, 55 films from many, many other countries, around 20 to 25 other countries. What makes a Jewish film? Is it the writers, the directors, the actors, the plot? How do you decide what is a Jewish film? A really good question, and it's one we, believe it or not, we still discuss every day in the office. You know, our first, firstly, we are looking at the content of the film. We are looking at films that engage with Jewish life and culture and themes. Those for us are obvious Jewish films. But sometimes there might be a film which you could argue it has a, some kind of Jewish sensibility or Jewish feeling to it. Those are a bit more ambiguous and we do broaden the scope of what we can bring into the festival by sometimes picking out films like that as well. So all I can say is, it, it is it's a constant source of debate internally and that's part of the fun of the festival, that we invite you to see these films and to discuss what is Jewish about these films? Are these Jewish? What is Jewish life? What is Jewish identity? This is why we exist as a Jewish film festival, to explore Jewish life and identity. What sort of films give us a few that are coming this year? What can we look forward to? So much. Of course, we've got our opening night gala, which we are very excited about. It's the UK premiere of Indignation from director James Seamus, who was the scriptwriter for some amazing films like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Brokeback Mountain. And this is a fantastic adaptation from the best-selling novel by Philip Roth, Indignation. It's a story about a young guy, young Jewish guy, son of a kosher butcher in New Jersey, gets a scholarship to uh, Midwest University in America and wants to better himself. And he falls in love with this amazing, blonde, beautiful girl. And it's about the impact that that has on his life and his identity as a, as a young Jewish man. Am I allowed to ask you? I'm going to anyway. What's your favourite this year? Give me a few then. Well, I wouldn't reveal my favourite. <laughs> they are all my favourites, I've got oh, to say. Oh, gosh, but like your I, children, really. Absolutely. But I would, I'll, I'll point out a few which really have you know, stood out for me this year. One amazing thriller from France called The Origin of Violence. Again, it's based on a, on a novel. It's a best-selling book in France about a young Catholic school teacher who takes his kids on a, on a trip to Germany to a concentration camp at Buchenwald and finds there a picture from the Second World War of the camp as someone who looks incredibly like his own father and he begins to unravel a whole story, disturbing story about his own family. It's very, very unexpected, original and keeps you on the edge of your seat. Also, some wonderful stories from Israel. We are bringing the Israeli entry for the 2017 Oscars, which is called Sandstorm. It'll be showing in the Cine Lumiere. And this is the first entirely Arab language film that has been entered by Israel for the Oscars. So it's really unique. It's a fantastic film set in Israel's Bedouin community. And I can thoroughly recommend it. Does that win a prize? recently yes it's won won various prizes Sundance at Berlin so it's really got a sort of yeah tailwind behind it yeah tell us a little bit about the venues we are at 12 venues across London and we're also in four other cities Manchester Leeds Glasgow and Nottingham 
we are, of course, in northwest London throughout, places like Swiss Cottage, Odeon, Everyman, Hampstead, the lovely Phoenix in East Finchley. We're over in Odeon, South Woodford. We're down in Cine Lumiere. We're in the centre of town for those who like going into town around the country as well. You can book directly on the websites of the cinemas themselves and the easiest way to find it is actually by going through our own website yeah how do you choose the films who puts them forward how are they is is there some kind of beauty parade almost of the films (laughs) well it's a year-round process we have a film programmer near cohen and we have a voluntary programming group who watch some of those films. I see many films. My colleague Judy Ironside, who started our festival, sees many films. So I guess it's a mixture, really. Firstly, we pick new films from some of the major international film festivals, such as Berlin, Cannes, Jerusalem. Those we sort of talent spot, you know, beauty spot films from those festivals and do our best to get them as early as possible so that we can bring them to to audiences very, very fresh. So that's one way we do it. The other way is just by our contacts, really, with distributors and sales agents, both in the UK and around the world. We just keep in touch with them. We find out, we try and root out what's new, what's Jewish, what's Israeli. It's those conversations. And also we get an awful lot sent direct to us at the office submitted to us so i would say probably there's you know five or six hundred a year that we're looking at and from that we're curating a festival of around 85 films of course we've got our year-round screenings as well these days so we're pretty busy year-round not only at jw3 our partner up in uh, on the finchley road but also now we're year-round once a month at the phoenix we're up in Cineworld didsbury in manchester we've got one screening a month in glasgow and we've got a series of screenings monthly at the real in boreham wood which is london's fastest growing or largest uh, jewish community are most of the films in in english or hebrew it's a big mixture we because there are a lot of international films foreign films we do of course have many many films with english subtitles it's got to be said that there are there are relatively few british films on jewish themes we we do our best to, to find those. And, of course, we encourage the production of such films. We have our Pairs Short Film Fund. We commission two films a year on Jewish themes. There's quite a few films from the U.S., but I would say generally, yeah, probably 75% are with English subtitles. But don't let that put you off. No, not at all. And what's the date of the film festival? Opens on Saturday, the 5th of November and closes on Sunday the 20th of November. Tickets are going fast and you can book on our website, ukjewishfilm.org. Michael Etherton, the Chief Executive of UK Jewish Film, talking to Kate Fulton there about this year's UK Jewish Film Festival. For more information, you can always go, as Michael has just said, to ukjewishfilm.org. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Jewish Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That all-important address is coming up, but that means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get the chance. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. 
Now, 10th of October saw World Mental Health Day. It featured a whole host of different well-known names trying to raise the profile and abolish the stigma for mental health. Well, the Jewish community is no exception to being affected by mental health conditions, and community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Tanya Harris from Jamie about the work they do. Diana started by asking Tanya, have attitudes towards mental health in general changed over recent years? I think absolutely that attitudes have changed. I think that over the last few years, mental health has moved itself away from being a Cinderella service into the forefront of people's minds. I'm not sure whether the Jewish community is behind the curve or in front of it, but I certainly think that mental health is higher up in people's minds now, not high enough. We're still working towards that parity of esteem, but we're getting there. Is there a higher incidence of mental illness in the Jewish community or is that not no, the case? No, not that we're aware of. Not that we, you're aware no, of. No, we, we, we go with the one in four. We go with the stats. We don't think that the Jewish community is any more or less prone to mental health problems. We may have a greater incidence of anxiety, Indeed. you know, um, and it might be that all ethnic groups have their own specific issues but in general terms we would say no it's the same across the board and let's talk a little bit about first aid because I know that's something that you're passionate about we are indeed mental health first aid was brought into the UK via it's an Australian product which has been altered to fit the UK market it is an excellent way of people understanding about mental health, understanding about mental illness and knowing what to do when somebody is unwell. So it is first aid for mental health. It's preserving life and seeking help. And we are very keen, Jamie is very keen to make sure that as many people as possible access the training and are first aiders both in the workplace and in their own lives so that we can respond appropriately to people who are suffering. It has a slightly different angle, doesn't it, to physical first aid, if I can call it that, because presumably the symptoms may not be that obvious, and therefore you presumably have to train people to spot things that don't become out there in front of you when you have to deal with them immediately. Yes, absolutely, and it's not as easy a fix as calling an ambulance and somebody being fixed in A&E, like getting a plaster on a broken leg, for example. No, you're absolutely right. There's watching, knowing what to look out for, watching symptoms develop, watching symptoms escalate and knowing how to support somebody, whether to suggest they go and see their GP um, when things first start to unravel and what to do in a crisis. The thought occurs to me that all this must cost a lot of money. Mental health first aid does cost money. It is a branded product that comes with a manual. So everybody who does mental health first aid goes away with a beautifully produced manual. The manuals cost money, the training costs money. Mental health first aid suggests that people are charged £200 per head to do mental health first aid. But Jamie doesn't charge that because we want people to do mental health first aid. We want mental health first aiders across our community. Are you sponsored so then in are, some way? So, well, not, no, not always. Not as much as you'd like not to be. Not as much as we'd like to be, but right. we, we do it anyway because it, for us 
it's important that it's something we, we do. But you yes, don't get any government funding from the NHS? We receive, I think, 98% of our funding is voluntary income generated through right. our fundraising efforts. We receive no, not very, very little funding through right. the NHS. Let's talk about something that's a little bit more fun, if I can put it that way. And that's the opening fairly shortly, I think, of a new cafe which is taken over from a one of your charity shops, I think, isn't it, in Gold's Green Road, which has got a somewhat of a tongue twister name to it, Sip, Shop and Share. Indeed. Well, we've, we've called the coffee shop Headroom. Right. And the Sip, Shop and Share is for people to sip their coffee, to shop in the vintage boutique end of the shop where we're going to have some high-end goods for sale, donated goods for sale. The share piece relates to the fact that whilst this is a coffee shop, a commercial coffee shop, it also has an underlying mental health theme to it. And we want people to be able to share any issues they may have with the workers that we will have in there signposting and offering guidance to people who may want to talk to somebody about their well-being generally or about something specifically. And this is somebody who's just walked in off the street. Yes, this will be someone who's walked in off the street, somebody who's coming for a coffee, who understands or appreciates that there are people around that they can talk to in a non-stigmatised way, just as you would walk in to any anywhere and ask a question and are the, the people that they're talking to how are they trained I mean are they just advisors who are going to point the person who's coming off the street in the right direction or are they actually going to give some form of counselling perhaps they are Jamie staff and we are calling them heads up workers they will be wearing heads up t-shirts so people know who they are right. they could be any of our staff members which we have occupational therapists, social workers, peer support workers. It is likely that they will mostly be peer support workers. Our peer support workers are people with lived experience of mental illness, and they are those that can say, I understand, I've been there, I know what you're going through. And they use their experiences to support others. And that's usually the best form that of support. That must be invaluable, Absolutely. Tanya, if people want more information, particularly about the shop, but also about Jamie, can they come to your website? Absolutely. Uh, jamieuk.org and all our addresses and our telephone numbers are there. Tanya Harris from Jamie talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about World Mental Health Day and, of course, the work that her organisation does. For more information, then you can always go to jamieuk.org. Jamie is, of course, spelt J-A-M-I. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining... Adam Bradley, Phil, Dave and me today, our children's author Joe Craig. And the subject today has been inspired by what we heard Kate talking about a little earlier on. 
As the UK Jewish Film Festival approaches us once more early next month, we thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about the influence Jews have had over the cinematic world. Joe, let's start with you. Why do you think we are so disproportionately good at contributing to the world of the silver screen? It might be to do with the origins of the Hollywood movie industry uh, over in the States, which, of course, is the main movie industry in the world, if we're not going to get into talking about Bollywood. Uh, But early on, in the early 20th century, there was a thriving Yiddish film scene in New York. And lots of the Jewish immigrants to New York developed that scene, and it was a very popular movie-making industry. And then lots of the, as the film industry evolved, lots of the talent went west and they set up the movie business in Hollywood. It was an area where lots of Jews were accepted, whereas they weren't in lots of other jobs. People like Sam Goldwyn and Louis B. Yeah, that was a few years later. And that was, I think, several years. The only big studio boss who wasn't Jewish was Jack Warner, I think. Oh, Uh, Jack Warner wasn't a Jew. Oh, was he? I I, I always thought he was. Does anybody else know? I think they all were accepted, I thought. I'm um, terribly sorry. You're talking about a little bit of a bygone era, not that's completely well, was, within my age range. I'm sure it's not with your well, age range either. It's not even mine. It's not even yours. Goodness no. me. Well, there you go. None of us around this table could even begin to imagine but I think that once, kind of era. Once but, the industry is established as an area where Jews can thrive and where they're welcomed in perhaps other areas where they weren't in American culture at that time, then it draws other Jewish talent to the same industry and, and grows like that. And it's, once it's perceived as somewhere where Jews can thrive... It's become self-fulfilling. I think, interestingly, the Jewish movie industry or Jews within the movie industry almost tracks the history of the immigrant for the first few decades in America, certainly. Initially, the Jews didn't want to really express their Judaism in, in film. They were very much behind the scenes. They didn't want to say too much. Then, as Jay said, there started being a bit more of an acceptance in expressing Judaism to the extent where it actually almost became quite trendy. I mean, think of someone like Al Jolson and the jazz singer, the son of a rabbi, who's the main focus of a film. And even going on with Al Jolson, the Jolson story, a story about the assimilation of Al Jolson and his family into America. I think, though, just to cut in there, it wasn't always that easy for them to express Judaism. Lots of the Jews in Hollywood were very keen to be seen to be fully assimilated and be fully American and shied away from telling explicitly Jewish stories or touching yeah. on things that would have made them stick out as Jews. It wasn't it, until the 50s when the civil rights movement actually No, it was before off. that, if you remember me saying so, because an awful lot of the people who became big Jewish names in the Hollywood film area were people who'd come from Europe as refugees from Hitler. Yes, that's oh, they true. were that absolutely, the yeah. But they and they were all very Jewish and always were very Jewish about. And but it's funny they they did hide their Judaism to a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when you look across, I mean, interestingly, I know this is slightly off topic, but interestingly enough, it's not because Superman, Batman, Spider Man, all these superheroes that are now oh, the Hollywood blockbusters, yeah. as we all know, yeah. they're Jewish. Yeah. And it actually the story of the Superman alien, was Jewish. Superman's Jewish yeah. without shadow of a doubt. A name like Kalel. A Jewish name, his father, Durel, every name ending with L. The house of L was Superman's family. Created by Shuster and... And it tells the story of an literally an alien who has two sides to his personality. The one where he's he can actually be out there and in his business. And then he's the quiet, meek sort of personality that's his real self. 
We've got a comment here on our Facebook page from Tony, who says that indeed the Warner Brothers were Jewish. Oh, they were Jewish. I thought oh, they were. Right. Ah, I got that wrong. Good. But in that good. case, they all were. <laughs> they're, they're, most of the studio bosses were Jewish. I was going to pick up on a point that Adam made. You had all these, not overtly Jewish, but superheroes created by Jewish people. Yeah. But they were very slow in the movie industry to make films that commented on the rise of Hitler in the 30s. Mm. And I think that was partly, or a great deal, to do with them not wanting to stick out as Jews, even at the time when it was so important to speak out for them. And the only major filmmaker who did was Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. And he certainly wasn't Jewish. Who was not Jewish. Right. And, and because he made The Great Dictator, lots of people assumed he was Jewish, and he was pressed over and over again on whether he was Jewish and refused to say either way, until eventually, when he was pushed for an answer, he said, I do not have that honour. See, the problem is, though, that I think that when you were saying it's a time when it was very important for people to speak out, considering the era that it was, surely, understandably, people were a bit reluctant to talk about Judaism just because it was around the time when Nazism but was at its... what is very interesting, at this particular time, one of the biggest names in Hollywood films, films, comedy, was the Marx Brothers. Mm. And they were very open about their Judaism. Mm. Yes, although they came from a, an older tradition of music hall and American vaudeville, which was... It was already ingrained in yeah, American culture. Yeah, already ingrained in American yeah. culture. And even their act wasn't a particularly Jewish act. They kept the, the name Marx, but they obviously they changed their first names. They weren't going to go around calling themselves Adolf Marx, which was one of their real names. Uh, they picked up on an older vaudeville tradition of having a funny one, a mute one, an Italian one, Chico Marx, pretending to be Italian. It's not, it's, that's not a very Jewish thing to do, really. Although, so what you're really saying then is that Judaism in film wasn't really brought out until after the war with a film like Gentleman's Agreement, which was all about anti-Semitism, which starred Gregory Peck, who was not a Jew. But hang on a second, you say Judaism in film wasn't brought out until then, but I don't know whether or not this is specifically about Judaism in film, because... As a people, I think it's fair comment to say that more often than not, certainly in years gone by, that we've been quite reluctant to express Judaism and admit that we are Jewish. Mm. He says broadcasting on Jewish radio. <laughs> However, I'm talking about a bygone era, of course, before the Jewish views existed. But don't you think that there was just subtle nuances within films that showed that there were Jews behind it? Well, there was in this country, to come come over to this country, there was Michael Balkan, who for many, many years was the leading producer in British film. And he was very, very much a Jew. And I think a lot of the producers were Jewish here as in, in the States. Yeah, but Michael Balkan made the fact that he was a Jew known to everyone. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I think there are some key figures throughout cinema and the history of the movie industry who were known to be Jewish and almost just famous for being the face of Judaism, really. If you think of, you mentioned the Marx Brothers, Gretchen Marx became a sort of face of being Jewish, followed by Woody Allen, who was obviously one of the, probably the first Jewish filmmaker people think of, possibly after Steven Spielberg. And I think they're probably, there are filmmakers who are as great, who just weren't known to be Jewish. There were a lot of Jewish producers and directors still, but as you say, it was only a few that were, would admit to it. Back in those days, the likes of Fritz Lang. Yeah. In Metropolis. Cecil B. DeMille. They had Jewish 
ancestry. I don't know. Yeah. Is he Jewish? I don't think he had Jewish ancestry. No, but he had Jewish and Jewish and Protestant ancestry. Oh, that's interesting. Which is, he drew on that obviously, presumably, for the Ten Commandments. Well, wasn't he also? He had a sort of suspect relationship with racism. I think. Says Mill, I could he, possibly with, uh, comment. Birth of a nation. So let's not do that too closely. But um, yeah, I think certainly the directors who had come over from Europe, as Clive said. Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder, yeah, the ones who had yeah. thick German accents yeah. couldn't really escape yeah. being identified as <laughs> European and probably Jewish. I wonder why it is, though, that specifically, and this was the question that you asked right at the beginning, is that why is it that Jews have got such an influence over the cinematic industry, the silver screen? I'm not so sure I understand why it's been that Jews have infiltrated I've always had screen. a theory, whether it's right or not, who knows. But my, Theory away. Let's, let's do it. Theory away. My theory is that we, as Jews, have spent thousands of years studying stories, learning stories, learning to tell stories. I mean, you tell... Well, no, don't tell me a rabbi that can't tell a story. I'm sure you could. <laughs> but we all know that Jews quite happy to stand up and talk and at the beginning of every rabbi's sermon there's always a little story or an analogy or a little joke or something jews love telling jokes jews tell stories and films are just ways of telling a story i think that's right and i've said the same for years about jewish writers that that there's a disproportionate number of jewish novelists as well Mm. but i think for the movies that combines with the fact that it was a haven if you think about the, the movement of peoples there weren't as many people out in california so everyone could get off there and ignore the sort of sects of different immigrants in New York who are struggling with each other and uh, coming up against racism and anti-Semitism across all other parts of America. They could start, establish this new industry with a new community and it was a haven for for Jews and it went on from that, I think. Well, now explain Um, why, why someone like Michael Balkan remained in this country all his life and always was known as being a well-known Jew who made films. It's not the same story, is it? You're right, it's a different story. I guess he cut himself a swathe in, in this country and he found himself his niche and, and stuck with it. I mean, There were other Jewish, him. British directors and producers who perhaps just weren't known as being Jewish, but you're right, there was this one who... I mean, for example, his, his grandson, Michael Balkan's grandson. Do you know who Michael Balkan's grandson is? No. Daniel Day-Lewis. Ah, now, is he Jewish? learn something every day. <laughs> is he Jewish? He is. Because his mother was Jill yeah. Balkan, who was a very well-known actress, and whom I, name-dropping now, whom I met and interviewed once, <laughs> and who was very keen on her Jewishness, although she married a non-Jew. Strange enough, this is a very interesting fact, Daniel Day-Lewis married, and I can't think of his name now, but she married the daughter of Arthur Miller, I think he married the daughter of Arthur Miller, who was a very famous American Jewish playwright. Thank goodness that. I thought you meant he married Arthur Miller. I was getting worried. (laughs) Hang on a second. I'm sure I don't remember reading that in Hello Magazine. That's that's interesting. (laughs) Arthur Miller. And I think they got married in an Anglican church. I may be totally wrong about that. This is Clive Roslin's Gossip Corner. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, Arthur Miller, Miller, or his mother at least, gave rise to one of my favourite Jewish Hollywood anecdotes about Marilyn Monroe, which you all must know. Go on. Which is that when Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe were an Item, they went to Arthur Miller's mother for Friday night dinner and had the soup with the matzo balls and Marilyn Monroe said, is there any other part of the matzo that you can eat? <laughs> <laughs> I, I so hope that's true. That's amazing. 
Love it. It does seem very strange, though, how poles apart it is from. If I'm allowed to be stereotypical here, just for a moment, because we're all Jews here, we're allowed to be stereotypical. <laughs> I don't understand why the average Jew becomes either an accountant, a lawyer, or a doctor, and yet. That's almost sort of accepted and that's almost expected in some way. But yet when it comes to the media, which is totally opposite ends, you're talking about academia versus creativity. It just seems bizarre that how on both ends of the spectrum that Jews have managed to infiltrate. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's I just, there, exactly. there doesn't seem to be any middle ground that we've infiltrated. It's either an academic specialist subject or it's creative, well, but creative on a grand scale. Is what you're saying really that we've shied away from physical labour? That we're not building? No, I think we got the physical labour out of the way early in the right. years gone by when we built the pyramids I, I and things like that. I think it's, like yeah. it's, yeah. it's simply that Jewish parents were very ambitious for their children yeah. and they wanted them to do well in the world. I think that's right. And those are probably the reasons why. And that, as, as Adam touched on earlier, is a very typically immigrant phenomenon, that immigrants want their children to achieve highly and to get on in society at a higher well, level. Well, it's than, exactly than... the same thing with Indian families in this country yeah. now who yeah. are terribly, terribly ambitious for their children mm. and educate them. Most of the younger doctors in Britain nowadays have Asian roots. Oh, We're yeah. very lucky that the likes of America and, and Great Britain took us in because they really are the lands of opportunity. And we took, not took advantage, but we took those opportunities. Had we been in the only places we go, parts of Africa or South America, maybe we wouldn't have. Jews have been in Britain since the days of Oliver Cromwell. Mm. So in this particular country, there's been Judaism living freely for a very, very many years now. Like I say, we're very lucky to have that. And I think that's why we've been able to flourish in these industries and we've been able to choose the industries that we've gone into. And maybe that's why you were saying Michael Balkan was able to become a Jewish very famous producer in Britain, whereas people like Samuel Goldwyn and the others kept very quiet about their Judaism. Maybe. Is that what you're saying? Maybe, maybe so, yeah. We've just got a very quick comment here from the Facebook page as well. If you are listening, obviously, on the podcast, please don't comment along on Facebook. This is obviously pre-recorded, but we were live at the time. Andrea says on Facebook, they are able to laugh at themselves and have an amazing talent for mimicry. Mm. I think that's true. Absolutely true. Oh, yeah. yeah, we don't take ourselves too seriously. I think she's right. I think that summarises the schmooze. <laughs> I think the is that in a nutshell. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, there we are. We'll have to leave it there at the bottom of the whatever. Uh, <laughs> my thanks On to our guest. On the cutting room floor, I think. And my thanks to our guest, children's author Joe Craig. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, just before our rabbinic thought for the week, it's time to hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And this week, she has a delicious recipe for us that's perfect for Sukkot. Over Sukkot, we really love to enjoy vegetarian dishes. And this one is really tasty. It is called oven-roasted pumpkin and chestnuts. And this is when pumpkin is just coming into season. And if you'd rather use butternut squash, that's fine too. The recipe serves six people and it takes only about 15 minutes to make. And what you need is a kilo of pumpkin, 
or butternut squash, peeled and deseeded and cubed, two tablespoons of olive oil, and seasoning of salt and freshly ground black pepper. And what you're going to do is preheat the oven so it's hot, 180 degrees centigrade, line a tray with baking parchment paper, and place this chopped pumpkin onto the tray and roast it for about 30 minutes until soft and golden. What you're then going to do is add the chestnuts, and these are whole chestnuts, which are peeled, a teaspoon of golden caster sugar, two shallots or two onions peeled and finely chopped, two cloves of garlic, which are peeled and again finely chopped, and some freshly chopped thyme. And add these ingredients after the first 30 minutes and cook on this tray together for a further 15 minutes. So it's a total of 45 minutes of cooking time. So this beautiful golden pumpkin dish is then finished with chopped thyme. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there. Thank you very much indeed for that delicious sounding recipe for Sukkot. And of course, if you would like the instructions on that recipe or of course any of Denise's other recipes, then you can always go to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. Well, now it is time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. It's wonderful after the close of the intense day of Yom Kippur to get down to something practical, like building the sukkah. When they were all at home, my children would give me about five minutes after returning from Ne'ilah to have something to eat, and then they would eagerly say, can't we go out and build the sukkah, something which always delighted and thrilled me. Sukkot is a beautiful festival, a time of thanksgiving, and as a keen gardener, I would always choose the seeds to plant in order to have lovely things hopefully, to hang in the sukkah. But I'm fascinated by the name the mystics gave to the sukkah, Tzila di Menuta, the shade or shadow of faith of the faithful one. No doubt this phrase refers to the roof. It's the roof that makes a sukkah a sukkah. Branches, leaves, and the hangings of the lovely fruits of the year Why is to sit beneath such a roof to be in the shadow of the faithful one, the shadow of faith? One might have thought if one wants to be in a protected place, it would be a castle, a stronghold, a keep, somewhere where your enemies couldn't get you. But the sukkah actually is the place of strength in this world. Just because it's so vulnerable, so impermanent, it's as if what's being said here is, There should be peace in the world and there should be neighbourliness so that one doesn't need thick walls to keep other people out. On the contrary, we each sit fragile within our lives and fragile within these temporary homes, but we have enough trust. We trust each other. We trust God. We trust the goodness of the world and we celebrate this innocence with gratitude for the year. That's the dream of what the sukkah is and why sitting beneath its leaves and thin canopy is to be in the shadow of faith. Faith in humanity, faith in God, faith that the world can be such a place of peace and thanksgiving. 
Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Edie Friedman, Michael Etherton, Tanya Harris. Thanks also to our schmooze guest, Joe Craig. And of course, also thanks to Denise Phillips. And of course, we must thank you at home for listening. And we can't possibly forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all the previous episodes by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>